Thank you for joining us on Theology Refresh, Desiring God's podcast for pastors and other leaders. Our hope is to sharpen you on various theological topics, to make them useful for your practical everyday ministry. And we have Jarvis Williams with us here today. Jarvis, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a privilege. Jarvis is the Associate Professor of New Testament and Greek at Campbellsville University in Campbellsville, Kentucky. And our topic today is the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Mm -hmm. Jarvis, what are we talking about when we talk about penal substitution? Yeah. Well, by penal substitution, I, I mean that on the cross of Jesus Christ, he actually absorbed the wrath of God for us so that on the cross, he's paying a penalty for sinners. And as a result of that, sinners who trust in Jesus Christ by faith alone, uh, by grace alone, are therefore justified by faith in Christ because Christ absorbed our sin, our wrath, our penalty, our judgment on the cross, and we therefore receive his righteousness by faith uh, in his name. So that's what I mean by penal su uh, substitution. Some call it violent atonement, um, uh, but, but that's in essence what penal substitution is. So penal, coming from same language as penalty, that's right. a penalty we're due for our sin, he takes our penalty as our substitute. That's right. Um, key biblical texts yes. you want to tie penal substitution Absolutely. to? Well, for me, there are a couple key key texts. One uh, is in Romans 3, verses 21 to, to 26. I, I actually argue that for Paul, the foundation of his soteriology is penal substitution. And I think you see that in Romans 3, 21 to 26, when Paul talks about the righteousness of God in 321 being, being revealed by faith. And then in verse 24, he talks precisely uh, about justification. And he says in verse 24, we're justified freely by God's grace through the redemption, so there's atonement, which is in Christ Jesus. And, and then he says in verse 25, whom God offered to be a propitiation through faith by his blood. So you have two statements already in this text connected to soteriology uh, as it pertains to atonement. One, you're justified uh, through the redemption in Christ, and Christ was offered by God to be a propitiation, a means by which God would satisfy his wrath. And then Paul, I think, develops that actually in verse 26 by talking about the fact that God did this in part because of the his forbearance to demonstrate his righteousness, that is God's righteousness. So it seems to me that in Romans 3, Paul's making the argument that God on the cross of Jesus Christ is satisfying his wrath, his justice uh, that he has towards sinners. And so Jesus gladly, lovingly, willingly, voluntarily takes that judgment upon himself to be the means by which the wrath of God is satisfied. I think a second text that's helpful is Galatians 3 verses 10 to verse 13, where Paul actually uses the language of cursing in Galatians 3.10, of course, pulling from Deuteronomy, where he argues that as many are from works of law or under a curse, for uh, everyone is a curse who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law in order to do them. So Paul makes a very precise point, picking up on uh, Deuteronomy. Namely, if you disobey to Torah, you suffer the penalty of that disobedience, which is death which is judgment. And so by virtue of being under the Mosaic Covenant, you're under a curse. But as he pushes forward, he, he says in verse 13, skipping over verses 11 and 12, he says in verse 13, but Christ redeemed us. It's a verb here, whereas in Romans 3, 24, it was a noun, redemption. But Christ redeemed us from the curse. And then he tells us how, I think, in verse 13, by becoming a curse for us. So once again, you have Paul connecting soteriology closely to this idea that Jesus took the wrath of God 
for sinners so that sinners can be saved and delivered from both the penalty and the power uh, of, of sin. So we have all these precious applications of Jesus' work, justification, regeneration, new birth, and sanctification, mm -hmm. and a coming glorification. And without this objective accomplishment mm -hmm. in the atonement, mm -hmm. There is no subjective application. That's exactly right. When I mean, you read further in Romans, you get to chapter 5, Paul talks about we experience in Romans 5, 5, the love of God by the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. But then he goes right into Romans 5, 6, talking about the work of Christ. Uh, for when we were still weak in 5, 6, Christ died for the ungodly. And then in 5, 8, God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So one implication is, is that we receive participation in experiencing the Holy Spirit by means of, certainly faith, but by means of also what Christ has done on the cross for us in his death. And I think Paul makes that actually very explicit in Galatians 3 verse 14, because he says in Galatians 3:13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And then verse 14 he says, so that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles. And then he says, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit. So it seems like God's soteriological plan is wrapped up in the work of Christ on the cross as a penal substitute, and the implications of how that practically work, works out, come, they come to us by means of what God has done for us in Christ. Uh, I think furthermore you can see uh, things like Romans chapter 12 and those ethical exhortations that Paul gives regarding being transformed, uh, be sanctified, be holy. That flows from what he's already put forth in Romans 3 and other verses regarding God's work for us and Christ's work on the cross. This is so, uh, so precious, indescribably precious to the Christian, to the, the one with biblical faith. Uh, the penal substitutionary atonement is at the very heart of the gospel, mm -hmm. and yet it's under great assault mm -hmm. in our mm -hmm. day. People don't like to hear about the biblical doctrine of hell or about the wrath of God, and penal substitution is directly connected yes. to the wrath of God. Can you tell us about some of those assaults, anything that pastors should be prepared yeah. to hear, or probably already hearing. Yeah, well, one of the assaults, I mean, there are many, of course, but one of the assaults that was offered, I think, in uh, the early part of, of, of this century has been that those of us who hold to penal substitution disregard the, the life of Jesus that we see in the Gospels. So some would argue that since you don't have penal substitution in the Gospels, uh, which I think is wrong, I think you do have it there, but some would argue that those who argue that penal substitution is the heart of the Gospel, that you're undermining all of Jesus' ministry, uh, incarnation, life, mission, preaching, uh, to emphasize only the cross and resurrection. And I would just push back and say that uh, it's a false economy in my view to separate the life and mission of Jesus from what he did on the cross and resurrection. It's a whole package. So, of course, the life and mission and ministry of Jesus are important for what he's going to do on the cross. So one pushback has been, well, those who argue for penal substitution dis undermine the, the, the life and mission of Jesus to the, to the neglect of, uh, or to, to emphasize penal substitution. Another uh, attack against it has come from the perspective of those who argue, uh, this is from, from what we would call black theology context or, or, or feminist, womanist theology context, they would argue that penal substitution is a Eurocentric doctrine. And, and that doctrine oppresses uh, minorities. Uh, so you have this Jewish person dying on the cross, taking the penalty for other people. And so some African-American scholars, uh, in both the feminist and the non-feminist count, would say that if you are a minority, you need to abandon this because this 
enslaves you because uh, it's about oppression. Um, but once again, I would push back and say when you read how the New Testament, especially Paul, develops penal substitution, this is a great work of God that by which he enables us to be part of the people of God. So those are a couple of pushbacks that we get in, in the guild in terms of uh, why penal substitution should not be affirmed. But one, one final pushback has been uh, it doesn't emphasize the love of God, which I think is quite interesting because Paul actually brings together, I think, penal substitution and the love of God in the same text in Romans 5, 6 to 11. Uh, he talks about God's love in the context of Jesus' penal substitutionary death for my sin. Um, but those are three pushbacks against the doctrine. Good. Any encouragement you'd have for pastors or other Christian leaders listening to this? Yeah, I would encourage all pastors, Christian leaders, not to shrink back from preaching penal substitution as the heart of, of the gospel. Certainly there are other aspects of the atoning work of Christ, but it seems that the penal substitutionary work of Christ is foundational to, to God's work for us in terms and in us in terms of salvation and sanctification. So I would say keep holding on to it by faith, clinging to it by faith, and, and preaching it boldly. Thank you. Would you close us in prayer? Absolutely. Father, we are so grateful for the substitutionary work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you offered him up to be a propitiation for our sins. And Father, we thank you that you raised him up from the dead for us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.